Please turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking again at that passage in Isaiah 9 that's been looked at the last couple of weeks. And then we're going to turn over to John 14 and read the first 11 verses of John 14. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then from John, the gospel according to John, verse four, or chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Well, during this Advent season, we have been looking at the prophetic passage in Isaiah 9, where it gives the well-known prophecy of the child who was to be born, who would be the king not only over Israel, but the king over all nations, the king over the universe. In verse 6, we've been focusing on the statement that talks about the titles that will be given to this child. That he, who the world would know him to be once he has come into the world. And the first Sunday, Pastor Cam led us in a study of the title Wonderful Counselor. And last Sunday, Pastor Ben led us in a study of the title, Mighty God. And so this morning, we come to the third of the fourth titles, Everlasting Father. Father, I think, is becoming an ever more problematic term in the culture in which we live. There have been so many fathers who have failed to do what they were called to do as a father. Also, the culture as it embraces same-sex marriage and gender confusion and the de denying of any distinction between the roles of husband and wife, father and mother. With all of that, I don't think that the view of who a father is or what a father is has ever been at a lower state. 
If you go to the dictionary to find out what a father is, you're going to get a very minimalistic definition. I looked it up, and of course, this is what it said a couple days ago. It could be different by now. They keep changing the meaning of our words. But what it said a couple days ago is that a father is a man who has begotten a child. Well, that's about as low as you could go to meet the requirements to be a father. I mean, basically, you just have to be with a woman once, uh, and possibly you could become a father. What the Bible says about who a father is, what a father is, is so much more than that. So much more. In the eyes of God, to be called to be a father, it is a very highly honored position in this world. And it's a huge responsibility. And so, one of the titles that's given to the coming Messiah, this prophecy that was written 750 years before Christ was born, one of the titles given to him is Everlasting Father. What does that tell us about who Jesus is? What does that tell us about why he came? Well, I want to begin by, again, reminding us of the context when this prophecy was originally given. 750 years before the birth of Christ, in the days of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet, and he spoke both to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel and Judah together made up the people of God of the Old Testament. And in order to understand Old Testament prophecy, you have to understand a distinction between the what I would call the visible Old Testament church, which would be the, the nations or the the uh, societies that we called Israel and Judah, they were the splitting up of Israel as a nation, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, those political social entities that could be recognized on earth, that, that is, in a sense, the visible Old Testament church. But, and so some prophecies, especially as we think of these prophecies in Isaiah, speak of judgment, of God abandoning his people, which we struggle with. How, do, how can God abandon his people? Well, sometimes he's talking to that broader group, but often he's talking in another place to a subset of the nation of Israel or Israel and Judah, which the Bible calls the faithful remnant. And that's a distinction we use today between the visible church, which is made up of anybody who makes a credible profession of faith and makes a commitment to a local body of believers, in other words, the organization that we call the church, the visible church, or we also talk about the invisible church, the church as God sees it, the church that was chosen before the foundation of the world, the church that is made up of truly regenerate, Bible-believing people. And so Isaiah's prophecies in this section, as you come to the end of chapter 8, God has brought charge after charge after charge against his people, thinking of the political, social group known as Israel and Judah. He has accused them of idolatry. He has accused them of arrogance, materialism, lust, drunkenness, even child sacrifice. They have turned their back upon their God. They have rejected their God. They have gone their own way. They have gone far astray. And in chapter 8, verses Verse 17, it says, Isaiah says that God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And then in verses 19 through 21, it says that these people, with this long list of charges, long list of sins that they've committed, 
they're making it worse by going to, as it says there, mediums and necromancers. In other words, they're going to the occult. They're going to, to dark arts to try to call upon uh, people who have died and dark spirits to try to get guidance, to get direction, to get truth. They've rejected the word of God and gone to the occult to get answers. And when their efforts to get direction, to get uh, truth from these dark arts, they end up worse off and in their anger they shake their fist at God to make it even worse. And so that's why we arrive at the place we do in verse 22. It says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. God has hid his face from those who claim to be his people, but do not live in loyalty to him and his covenant. What God would do is send the evil empire of Assyria. Assyria as a world empire in that day was known for its brutality for its inhumane treatment of the people that they conquered. And they would be sent as a rod of discipline into Israel, into Judah. They would totally destroy Israel and send its people off in exile, and they would march all the way through the southern kingdom of Judah, all the way to the walls of Jerusalem. But, and that's how chapter 9 starts, chapter 9, verse 1. But God is now going to speak to the faithful remnant. Yes, he's going to bring judgment upon Israel and Judah as, as political entities. But here he speaks to those who have been faithful. There's always, he has always preserved a faithful remnant. Like in the days of Elijah, when 7,000 people would not bow a knee to Baal. There's always a faithful remnant. And here is the message of promise and the message of grace that comes in chapter 9. It says here that in this deep darkness, God, by his grace, was going to send a great light. Light in scripture always refers to truth. It refers to the glory of God, the presence of God, the favor of God, the grace of God. It says in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, these were the northernmost parts up on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, the northernmost parts of Judea. This was the area that the Assyrians first destroyed. But, shift your thinking 750 years to the future, in the first century AD, Naphtali and Zebulun were made up the area that we, that in that area, that part of period of time is called Galilee. Even here it was called Galilee. Galilee of the nations. That's, they call it that because it was a mixture of, of Jews and pagans in that area. And it says the light is going to come to that region. You know what? After Jesus was baptized, when he began his earthly ministry, he went to Galilee. He went to Capernaum, which is in the very center of this region that we're talking about, and set up his base of operations there. And as we saw in the, in the gospel according to Luke that we've been looking at for the last several months, that's where all the beginning of his ministry, that's where he did all his miracles, where he did all his teaching. The light had come to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, as God had promised. It says in verses 3 through 5 that when this light came into the world, it would bring great joy to the faithful remnant in verse 3. 
bring deliverance from their enemies, from the bondage that they had submitted themselves to in verse 4. And in verse 5 talks about the cleaning up of the, the remnants of a war, that the war is done, the time to rejoice and to celebrate victory. That's what this light would do. I want you to notice that the verbs are all in the past tense. Did you notice that? Isaiah talks about these great events, the coming of the light and the effect of the coming of the light. He talks about it all in past tense as though these things had already happened. If you know anything about Old Testament prophecy, that often occurs, where the prophet will talk about some future event as though it has already happened. They call that the prophetic perfect, and that's the, it's a, in the Hebrew language, it's the perfect tense. It's something that was completed in the past. It's spoken of that way because in the mind of God, it's as good as done. That's how the prophets talk because they, they, would, they would use that prophetic perfect, that past tense to say, even though it's something that's still to come in the future, it's as though it's already occurred because that's how certain you can be that God will fulfill his promise. Well, how does this great light come into the darkness of this world? What are they to look for? They look for some army of angels coming over the horizon? Are they looking for some supernatural uh, figure to appear, some superhero to appear on the on the on the horizon? Is that what they're looking for in the light? No. Matter of fact, I want to first of all point out that they have to look outside themselves. What does this culture tell you to do? When you need light, when you need guidance, when you need direction, when you need purpose, when you need peace, what does this culture tell you to do? It tells you to look within yourself. Look within yourself. Look to the light within you. But God says, no, that light's got to come from me. That light's got to come from outside of you. Inside, if you look inside of you as a sinner, all you're going to see is darkness. You need to look outside of yourself. This light will be revealed by God. It'll be something that God and God only will do. And so in verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born. This light would come in the form of a human child. He would be the son the son of David. Every Jew knew that when you say a child is going to be born, a special child is going to be born, he's going to be a son. A son of who? A son of David. Because David was given that great promise that one of his descendants, one of his sons, would someday take the throne and rule forever. This child obviously would be fully human. But we already know, if you know anything about the prophecies of Isaiah, back in chapter 7, two chapters earlier, Isaiah had already revealed that this child would be far more than just human. Yes, he would be fully human, but he would be more than human. He says there in verse 14 of chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A virgin conception, a miraculous conception, and this child would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And lest there be any doubt about what God was communicating in that prophecy, here in chapter, in chapter 9, verse 6, he says that one of the titles to be given to this child is Mighty God. This child would be fully God and fully man. That's how the light would come into the world. Well, as again, as we look at these four titles then, I want to come to that third one, Everlasting Father. How does that fit Jesus Christ? How does, what does that tell us about who he is and why he came? Well, first of all, I need to make clear that this does, he's not saying that the Father and the Son 
are the same person. I think probably most of you, when you've heard this prophecy given at this time of year especially, you've thought, wait a minute, Jesus is God the Son, he's not God the Father. Why does Isaiah say here that this, that this child who is born to be fully God and fully man, why is he going to be called the Father? Well, he doesn't mean that they're the same person. This is not a denial of what the rest of the Bible teaches of what we call the Trinity. The early church actually addressed the idea that God the Father and God the Son were the same person. They, they, they addressed that and rejected it as a heresy. It was called Sabellianism or modalism. It was the idea, this was being taught back in the third century, the idea that there is one God and only one God, and that God in the Old Testament time was called the Father or Yahweh, but then that one God became a man, and then God was only a man as Jesus, and then after Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended to heaven, God then became the Holy Spirit. You see what I'm saying? One God in three modes, in three states of being. Matter of fact, sometimes you might have heard that, the, uh, that uh, somebody trying to teach the Trinity to children especially, I've heard this used a number of times. Well, if you want to understand the Trinity, it's kind of like how one, you have to take a glass of water. It can be water, or it could be a block of ice, or it could be vapor in the air. But see, three states of being. But the problem is that's an illustration of a heresy, not the illustration of what the Bible teaches. That's the modalism heresy that God the Father became God the Son, and then once he's done being God the Son, he became the Holy Spirit. No, what the Bible teaches is that God, there is one God. That is true. There's only one God. But God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three separate, distinct persons. That's the Trinity. And this passage is not denying that. So if it's not teaching that, then what is it telling us about who Jesus is and why he came? Well, I believe it points to two truths that are precious to us as believers. The first truth is that this king, this God-man, who is born to be a king, that he reveals to us who God the Father is. He is the means by which God the Father reveals himself to us. That's why I had us read through John chapter 14 because that's the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. He doesn't back away from that tension between one God in two persons, God the Father and God the Son. He doesn't back away from that. The disciples ask him, particularly Philip asks him in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. What Philip is articulating there is what every born-again, true believer knows in their heart, what they long for in their heart, is to see the fullness of who God is, to experience the presence of God, to see him as fully as a human being can see him. You remember the crisis of faith that Moses had whenever the people rebelled at the foot of Mount Sinai and, and made the golden calf and, and went back to idolatry. And Moses goes to the top of the mountain to plead for the people of God before God. Remember, in the midst of that pleading, that interceding for the people of God, Moses articulates this very same desire. He says to God on the top of the mountain, please show me your glory. I want to see you, God. 
And God answers him and says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. A sinner cannot look upon the fullness of the glory of God. And so what God gave him was just a, a vision that was a hint of his glory there on the top of the mountain. But that is something every true child of God wants, is to see God the Father, to see him in his fullness and his glory, to experience him as much as possible with all of our senses. But sin has hidden his face. But remember what Jesus said then in verse 9. He says to Philip, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, obviously, he's not talking about his physical appearance. God is a spirit. Only God the Son had a true human nature, human physical nature. He's talking about his essence, the heart, the, the true inner person that is God the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We use that in, our, in the way we talk about seeing people. If, if I were to walk into the room and a stranger I'd never met before is sitting in that room and my wife was sitting on the other side of the room, they would both look at me and see me physically. They would see the same thing looking at me as a physical body. But my wife would see me. She would see much more than who I am physically. She would know my heart. She would see the fullness of who I am. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. If you want to see the Father, look at me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the light that Isaiah is talking about. The light that has come into the world. The light is Jesus Christ, who shows us the glory of God the Father. Jesus is called the everlasting Father, because to know him is to know the Father. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father. It's not a very popular message in our pluralistic culture, but the world needs to know that. That's what Jesus is saying in this whole context. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you don't know me, you don't know God. Or as John chapter 1 verse 18 puts it, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has seen God the Father except God the Son who is at his side. And God the Son has come. He's brought the light so that we may see the Father and know the Father. And so I think that's part of what this prophecy is getting at by saying that Jesus would come as the everlasting Father. He would be the one who would come to reveal who the Father is in all his fullness. But the second way in which Jesus fits the title of everlasting Father is that this King, this Messiah, loves us like a father. The Father and the Son share the same love for the invisible church, the true people of God, the born-again, regenerate people who love Christ. He, he loves us like a perfect father. According to Scripture, a godly father loves, teaches, provides for, and protects his children. And he does all this unconditionally. 
He does it because he loves them, not because they perform in any certain way. That's what it means to be a father scripturally. Now, I want to acknowledge at this point that many of us had fathers, well, in one sense, to one degree or another, all of us had fathers who failed to do that, failed to fulfill that role. And so the term father, when you think father and when you apply that to Christ or when you apply it to God the Father, it's a negative image to one degree or another because of the failings of our fathers, because of our failings as fathers. When we think of father as a concept, it brings back painful memories for many, many people. But God is the ultimate father of whom every other father on earth is a very pale, minuscule copy. You know, when I talk about the fatherhood of God, or particularly Jesus, as he refers, he reveals the fatherly love of God. When I talk about this, I realize that most of us have what they call daddy issues. Most of us have we're broken parts of our personality because of a problem in our relationship with our father. And that's something that most people that that I've ever talked to about their problems in the adult life, a lot of it stems back to relationship with both their father and mother, but often, especially with men, it's the men and the fathers. It's painful because our fathers have failed miserably to be like God the Father. My favorite movie, if you were to ask me to list my top favorite, top five favorite movies, number one is Field of Dreams. People think that Field of Dreams is about baseball. Is not about baseball. If you've watched Field of Dreams and you, that's your, your take on the Field of Dreams, then you have totally missed the point of the movie. The, field, the, book, the movie Field of Dreams is about a middle-aged man trying to deal with the rejection of his father. That's what that movie's about. And I don't know many men who have ever watched that movie who haven't actually wept. No matter how manly they are, they weep at the last scene when Ray realizes that the catcher on the ghostly team that inhabits his baseball diamond in the cornfield, that Ray, that the guy who's catching is Ray's father. And the very last thing you hear is Ray saying to his father, Dad, you want to have a catch? Because it strikes right at the root of a deep psychological pain that we have. We have daddy issues because of the failure of our fathers. Yes, our failures too, but our father's not being like God the Father. But that, don't give up that ideal. For you who are fathers or for you who have been hurt by your fathers, don't give up the ideal because God the Father is that ideal. He is a father to the fatherless. If I tried, if I took one of Rembrandt's paintings and I tried to copy it and, and make, a, make a copy of it and give it to you as a Christmas present, you would throw it away after you said thank you and after I left, you would throw it away because it would be trash. It would be terrible. But that wouldn't make you appreciate the original painting by Rembrandt any less, would it? That's what our fathers are like. They're just poor copies of the original. A perfect godly father would embody humility, servant leadership, wisdom, patience, grace, righteousness, justice. A true godly father would look like God the Father. And especially, he would exhibit unconditional love. You could not lose the love of a godly father, no matter how you live, no matter what you did. Psalm 103, verse 13, 
We read this earlier. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Jesus is that kind of fatherly love incarnate in the flesh. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. He is everlasting. He shows the love of a perfect father forever. It can never be lost. You see, God is not the father of all people. The culture will tell you, try to tell you that. All the religions are the same. They're just different ways to get to God. No, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. God is the father only of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. God is the father only of those who are justified by faith alone. Because sin has to be dealt with. Our sin has to be punished. And either your sin is going to be punished in the person of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross, as God poured out his wrath upon his own son, as he paid the price for our sin, or you pay for your sin for eternity in hell. But God is only the father of those who not only have been justified by faith in Christ, had their sins all forgiven, and been given the gift of perfect righteousness, which belongs to Christ and is given to us as a gift by faith, only those people who are justified by faith alone can be adopted. Only they are candidates to be adopted, and every one of them who is justified by faith alone in Christ will be adopted by the Father, and you can never use, lose the love of your Father. That is the beauty of being adopted. The moment you are officially adopted, the moment you are legally a child of a father, you are entitled to all the rights and privileges, all the rights, not some of them, not partially, every right and privilege of a full son. That means we're always accepted by Christ. If, he's, if he exhibits the everlasting love of a father, then we are always accepted by Christ in every situation. One of my favorite books that I've read this past year is a book that I've been recommending to a lot of people and Pastor, uh, Pastor Owen had recommended to me and, and I've been passing along that recommendation to everybody I meet. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, written by Dane Ortland. I recommend it to all of you. And it's the, the concept of the book is very simple. He just wants to dig in to what is it, how, how does Christ love us? He, he wants us to, to dig deep into what the Bible teaches us about the heart of Christ and how Christ looks at us, how he loves us. And in that book, at one point, he, he, he puts a hypothetical situation. I says, what if in a family, if you had a group of kids in a family, and one of these kids, one of these sons, says, you know, he just starts being extra kind to his brothers and sisters. He, gets, he starts asking for extra chores to do beyond what he's assigned to do. And he's especially polite and obedient to his parents. And after a while, the parents are like, man, this is great, but this is weird. What's going on here? What's with this kid? And so they pull him aside and say, you know, why are you, why are you acting different? Why are you doing this? And what if the son says, it's because I want to be more certain about my place in the family. I want to make my place in the family more sure. So I'm working really hard to make sure that's true. What would any decent father say? That your, your, your inclusion in my family is not based on good works. You were born into this family. You were born with the rights of full acceptance. You can never lose your status as a son in the family of God. 
At the end of telling that story, he says this, and this, these are words to live by. Listen to this. He says, live your life knowing your sonship is settled and irreversible. Live your life knowing that your sonship is settled and irreversible. Jesus Christ is everlasting Father. He exhibits the love of God our Father perfectly and forever. Our sins do not make God love us less, and our good deeds do not make him love us more. He loves us fully, whether we're sin or not, and we can never lose our status in his family. So let me just close by asking this simple question. If you imagine God looking down on you right now, and if you could see his face, what expression would you see on his face? as he looks at you in your life. When you think about God looking at you, do you imagine a smile on his face or do you imagine a frown? Do you imagine a look of disgust or a look of care and kindness? Do you think God looks at you as something he's ashamed of or something he loves and adores as his child? You know, the key to any relationship is trust. That's true for any relationship, whether you're talking about parent-child or spouse-to-spouse spouse or friend-to-friend. Friend, you need to trust the other person. And when I say trust the other person, I mean trust the heart of the other person. Trust the way that they look at you when they see you walk into the room. You need to trust that they love you, they care for you, they think well of you. I learned this lesson, I, I, I shared this with the leaders a number of times, and it was a painful lesson for me, but it was an important lesson in my life. When I was serving a different church, one of my best friends, eventually, after he came to the church, we became really close friends, and then eventually he was elected to be an elder in the church. But once he became an elder, I slowly began to realize that his view of the role of a leader and his role, his view of his philosophy of ministry for the church was very different than mine. And this led to a lot of conflict. And it led to a lot of difficult, tense moments. And, and there were times when he really hurt me because he was my friend. And I felt like he was betraying by not supporting. And I was really processing. I'd go home and I'd talk to my wife about the hurt that I was feeling. And, and she would, of course, being a good wife, I'm wearing the white hat and the other guy's wearing the black hat. That's what a good wife, you know, that we, we love that about our wives. They keep telling us how we're all right and the other person's all wrong. But I would say, no, it's, it's not that simple. And I would just say, you know, I don't like what he's saying. I'm hurt by what he's doing, but I trust his heart. But then after many months of that, one day after a difficult meeting with this individual, I came home to my wife and I said something I realized was a watershed moment in my relationship with this elder. I said, I don't trust his heart anymore. I don't trust his heart anymore. And the relation was broken. The great news is that as a child of God, you can always trust the heart of the Father. You can always trust his heart. Always know that even when you sin, he is zealous, he's passionate to show mercy towards you in your sin. He loves you unconditionally with the love of the Father. Jesus Christ, as we saw, according to Hebrews 1, 
is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He embodies what true, perfect, fatherly love is like. You can trust his heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can call you Father. We don't deserve to do that. Lord, at best, before you brought us out of darkness, we could only call you judge and cower in fear before your wrath upon our sins. But you sent the light, the light that is Jesus Christ. And he not only embodied the love of you, our Father, but he died on the cross in our place so that we could experience that love along with him. Father, thank you for your grace towards us. And Lord, I pray that we all would recommit ourselves to digging deeper into understanding the heart of Christ, understanding how much you love us, how much you care for us, how merciful you are, how eager you are to forgive and to receive. Just like the, the father of the prodigal son, you run to meet us in your mercy. Father, correct our view and cleanse out of our minds and our hearts any false views of what it means that you are our Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.